Well, hey, it feels so great to be back with you guys. Uh, my family really appreciates the leadership here at First Church, giving us this extended transition time to move to Oklahoma. But at the same time, it feels like it's been too long since I've been with you. And I, in fact, I had a lot of people tell me that this week as I was back in town. They were saying, you know, Chad, we really missed you. We're so glad you're back. And I kept thinking, yeah, I hope that lasts over time. We'll see in a few months because now you're stuck with me. So we'll see what happens. But I am excited to be here. I'm excited to celebrate Christmas with you guys. Christmas is next week. Is that, that's crazy. You know, it's a week from Christmas Eve is a week from the day. So make sure you're inviting people. Um, as Matt said, it's a prime time to invite people to come to church. And I want to challenge you guys. I want to challenge you to invite at least one person or one family to come with you next Sunday. And even if they want to come to a service that you're not coming to, come with your family and come back with them. And if you come with them, they're more likely to come themselves. So we're going to have a great time next Sunday on Christmas Eve. It's going to be a lot of fun. But I'm most excited to see what God has in store here at First Church for our future. Uh, we are a church that meets in multiple locations. So we've got friends and family right now meeting at Vertigris and Stone Canyon online as well. So if you would, you guys here at North Garnett, put your hands together and welcome them to our conversation we're going to have around God's Word. Well, like I said, Christmas is just eight days away, and that is hard for me to believe. This year has just flown by. I don't know if you feel the same way, but especially these past couple months for my family as we're relocating to Oklahoma, it's just been crazy, and it's been hectic, and Alice and I, we're doing fine with the move. I mean, we have the typical stresses that come along with moving, but we're doing fine with it, but I wasn't sure if my kids were handling it okay. Now, Addie, she's eight months old, so she doesn't know what's going on. She's fine. She's always happy. But my son, Alex, he's four. He's going to be leaving his friends and spending Christmas away from family for the, the first time. And so I just want to make sure he was okay. And one day I sat him down and I said, you know, Alex, buddy, we're going to be spending Christmas this year out in Oklahoma, not in Kentucky. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with spending Christmas in Oklahoma? And he looked at me and very serious, very matter-of-fact said, well, yeah. And I just kind of thought, well, that's great. I mean, it's very mature of him. I said, well, that's great, buddy. Why do you feel that way? And he said, because daddy, no matter where I am, I'm still going to be with you, mommy and Addie. And I just kind of thought, oh, you know, that warmed my heart. That was the part in the service when you all should have said, oh, out loud, okay? So let's try that on the count of three. You ready? One, two, wait a second. People are jumping ahead. Here we go. One, two, three. Oh, very good. You guys are awake. I appreciate that. It was like one of those hallmark moments, you know? And I was just so thrilled. I mean, such a sweet kid. He gets that from his daddy. And I was just so thrilled that he said that, but it didn't last very long. Because right after he said it, he goes, plus, and here it comes, plus, I hear that kids that live out in Oklahoma, they get more gifts for Christmas. <laughs> My four-year-old son is using this move to play me to get more gifts. Not only is he sweet, he's smart, unlike his daddy. But you know, I love being around little kids. And one of the primary reasons why I love being around little kids is because you never know what they're going to say. You never know what's going to come out of their mouths. And I came across a video not too long ago of a little boy who was asked to sing a solo in church, and I don't think anyone was ready for what he did. Take a look at this video clip. John Acts 2, lesson to the Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians and Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus and Philemon, Hebrews, James, 
first and second Peter, first and second and third John, Jude and Revelation. All my exes live in Texas, and Texas is a place that I dearly love to be, but I I love that little kid. I really do. He reminds me a lot of me, honestly, but I also love that clip. And I love that clip because it reminds me of a very powerful life truth, and it's this. What's in us is going to come out of us. What's in us will eventually come out of us. Now, that's especially true for little kids. You guys know this. Little kids, it's hard for them to keep what's on their minds to themselves. They, they let you know how they're feeling. They don't hold anything back. But that's also true for us as adults. What's in us will eventually come out of us. Now, we're a little bit better at hiding our emotions, our feelings, our character on the inside. But eventually, it's going to be made known. And I believe that one of the clearest indicators to the watching world that we, as followers of Jesus, are who we say we are, is the joy that Jesus has planted within us. I like to say that when Jesus lives in you, joy comes out of you. Joy is the natural result of doing life with Jesus. See, for me, Christmas is not just a moment in the year where I celebrate an historical event that took place many years ago. No, Christmas is bigger than that. Christmas is a joyous celebration of God coming to live in us and with us. And there's a reason why God came to live in us and with us. Because he wanted to bring the joy of heaven into the sadness of our lives. In Isaiah 7 verse 14, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the Bible prophesied this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. And you Old Testament students know that that name, Emmanuel, in Hebrew means God with us. God came to dwell among us because He saw us in our mess and He didn't want us to stay there. He saw us in our isolation. He saw us in our emptiness. He saw us in our sin. And He didn't want for us to live like that anymore. He wanted to change our story. And so He came to the earth to do just that. Jesus came so that the joy of heaven could invade the sadness of our lives, could invade the sadness of this world. And that's why in Luke 2.10, when the angel first announces the birth of Jesus, the angel says to the shepherds, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great what? Joy. That will be for all people. Everyone. When Jesus lives in you, joy comes out of you. And there's a reason for that. Because only Jesus has the power to give us a better story. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, Jesus has the power when He lives in you to give you a better story, to, to rewrite the script of your life. Because He's in the process of rewriting the course of history, rewriting the story of the human race. And when you let Him live in you, He has a place for you in that story. And I believe that's the very point that Matthew wants to make when he first introduces us to Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. So that's what we're going to study this morning. If you have your Bibles or a Bible app on your phone or tablet, go ahead and look up with me Matthew chapter 1. That's where we're going to be camped out. And what Matthew is getting ready to do 
This introduces to the most important person who has ever lived, getting ready to tell the most important story that's ever been told, getting ready to tell the story of how God came to earth as a man to rewrite the story of the human race. And this is how Matthew begins his introduction to Jesus. Matthew 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Riveting, isn't it? I mean, isn't that just an exciting opening line? Aren't you on the edge of your seat wanting to know more? I mean, this is the intro to the greatest story ever told. This is God first introducing His Son to the world. And what? Or how does He do it? With a bunch of names. With a genealogy. I mean, riveting, right? Charles Dickens, in his classic work, A Tale of Two Cities, he opens up with this line. It was the best of times... It was the worst of times. Now, that's a good opening line. That draws you in. That captures your attention. That makes you want to read on. John Grisham, in his best-selling novel, The Appeal, opens up with this opening line. The jury was ready. I mean, doesn't that just draw you in? Don't you want to know what the jury was ready for? That's a good opening line. And even Rick Warren, in his best-selling evangelical book, The Purpose Driven Life, opens with this line. It's not about you. Again, don't you want to know what his next sentence is? Don't you want to know what comes next? Those are all great opening lines. They draw us in. They capture our attention. They leave us wanting more. And here Matthew gets ready to tell the story of God rewriting the human story. And he opens up with a bunch of names? Is that really what's best? I mean, any of us if we were introducing the world to Jesus for the first time, probably would have started in a different way. And yet Matthew starts like this. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He might as well have given us all a glass of warm milk and a sleeping pill. And I'm sure right now many of you are probably on the edge of your seat thinking to yourself, Oh, genealogy, I just love genealogy. Chad, give us more of the genealogy. Please give us more genealogy. Well, if that's what you're thinking, don't worry. You're in the right place. I'm going to do just that. So pick up with me if you would, Matthew 1, verse 2. And Matthew continues. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram. You know, that's a good name, isn't it? Ram. Hey, my name is Ram. That's my brother Billy Goat. You know, that's a good name. That's, I mean, isn't this just so exciting? Aren't you just ready to hear more about who this Jesus fellow is? Of all the ways for God to introduce us to his son. A bunch of names? That's what's best? Well... Before your eyes gloss over and your head start to bob because you're falling asleep, or maybe you just check out, hang with me for a second. Because I think there's a reason why Matthew 1 starts off this way. And that reason gives me hope. That reason actually brings me a lot of joy. See, I'm glad that Matthew doesn't start off his gospel with a line that a lot of stories start off with. Once upon a time. There's a reason why Matthew doesn't start off with a line once upon a time, because Jesus' birth... It's not a fairy tale. It's not a children's fable. Now, some people treat it like that, but it's not. In fact, a few years ago, there was an atheistic group that put up billboards all over our country around this season that had this message on it. You may remember these billboards. It said, you know it's a myth. This season, celebrate reason. 
Now, I doubt if any of us in the room would agree with the message of that billboard, but sometimes we do treat Jesus' birth like just another fairy tale, another children's fable. I have some friends who attend a church, and they had a parents' night out to allow the parents to go Christmas shopping, and so they watched the kids. And one option that the kids had that night was to watch different Christmas movies. They had a room just with Christmas movies playing. And so they showed some of the classic Christmas movies, you know, the claymation movies like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman. We all love those movies, nothing wrong with them. But then they also showed that night an animated version of Jesus' birth. And I was talking to these friends that go to church there, and they said the next day their kids were a little bit confused because the movies had kind of all run together. They were kind of blurred together. And their kids started talking about how Frosty the Snowman was at the manger scene, how there was a magic hat that Joseph put on, and so that's when the angels came. And they had the stories all mixed up. And Rudolph apparently led the wise men to come see Jesus. They had the stories all mixed up. There's nothing wrong with watching those movies, but sometimes do we put Jesus' birth on the same level as Frosty the Snowman? And Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. See, Matthew starts off his gospel this way, to let us know that Jesus was born in the real world at a real point in history. And Matthew doesn't try to cover up or clean up Jesus' family background. In this day and age, family pedigree was extremely important. It was the foundation for your social status. It was how you received your privilege. In fact, it was so important that some ancient Jews were known for doing a little editing in their family tree. They'd go back and they would remove all the Cousin Eddies from their family line that, you know, embarrassed them. Anybody remember this guy, Cousin Eddie, you know? They would go and take out their Cousin Eddies. Let me just see by a show of hands. How many of you guys have a Cousin Eddie in your family? Okay, a few of you. Don't, don't shout out their name. I don't want to know. But yeah, I think we all do. So they would literally take out these Cousin Eddies from their family tree because they were embarrassing. And let me illustrate it like this. You guys probably know by now I'm a pretty big Kentucky basketball fan. Let me just see. Do we have any Kentucky basketball fans in the room? Okay, I see one in the back. Okay, I heard somebody cheer. All right, God's people are in the house. All right, I'm excited. Well, I know the large majority of you are not. Let me just see. How many Oklahoma State fans do we have? Do we have some Oklahoma State fans? You can, you can shout out. That's okay. How many Oklahoma OU fans do we have? Oh, okay. Few. It sounds like a few more. That surprised me a little bit. And I really don't want to ask this, but I'm going to. They're just north of us. How many Kansas Jayhawk fans do we have in the room? Man, you all need Jesus. Okay. But I'm a big Kentucky basketball fan, and so I've been to dozens of games at Rupp Arena in Lexington. And these past couple years, before they start the second half, they'll play this hype video that goes to the history of Kentucky basketball. You know, the greatest basketball tradition, the history of college basketball. Anyway, that's what they always say, and I believe that. But they show this uh, highlight video, this hype video, and um, they show different players from the past and games that were big. And they also show former coaches. And so as you watch this video, you'll see a clip of this guy. Now, if you're not a Kentucky fan, you may not know who he is, if you want to put him up on the screen, but if you're a basketball Benny, you probably know this is Adolph Rupp, you know? He was known for a long time as being one of the greatest coaches in the history of basketball, won four national titles, kind of laid the foundation for Kentucky basketball. They also showed this guy in the hype video, Joe B. Hall. He won a national championship in 1978. He's from Cynthiana, the town I used to preach in, so we would see him around town and stuff. That was kind of cool. Uh, They also showed this guy on that video, Tubby Smith. He won a national championship in 1998 at UK. And then they show our current coach, John Calipari, and he won a national championship in 2012, and we all love John Calipari, Coach Cal. But, you know, there were a few coaches in between these guys that they don't show in this hype video. And one of those coaches is a face that probably many of you recognize, this guy. 
Eddie Sutton. Now, I know Eddie Sutton is kind of a popular name around here. Some of you guys are clapping already. His name is mud around Kentucky because after he left, we were on probation. So we try to pretend like, you know, he wasn't our coach. Uh, you guys are cheering for that as well, that we were on probation. What's up with you people? Okay, another coach that they, uh, that they don't show is this guy, Billy Gillespie. Now, Billy Gillespie was only there for two years, but our program hit rock bottom under Billy Gillespie. It was just really bad. He was fired after two years. And then the other guy they don't show is this guy. You've probably seen him in the news here recently, Rick Pitino, the whole Adidas scandal that's going on right now. Not only did he go coach at our biggest rival, Louisville, uh, he also has been in a lot of trouble since he left UK. And so they just don't even mention him at all. Now, one time, all three of those guys were celebrated coaches at Kentucky. And the fan base, we were behind them. But now, we just kind of act like they were never part of our history because they're embarrassing. And you guys know what that's like. Probably some of you guys have done that with your own family. We have a tendency to cover up our blemishes, to cover up our past embarrassments. But that's not what Matthew does when it comes to Jesus. It's as if Matthew wants us to know that Jesus came from a dysfunctional family and was born into a dysfunctional world. And I believe, I'm convinced, that who's included in Jesus' family tree is very intentional. Because who's included lets us know why Jesus came and why it matters. It also lets us know who he came for. So let's take a look at who Matthew includes. So go back with me to verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now from the very start, Matthew wants us to know two things. Jesus is first a son of David, and second, he's a son of Abraham. David was the greatest king in Israel's history by far. And not only that, David was known for being a man after God's own heart. And God promised David that from your descendants would rise a great king who would establish an eternal kingdom that would reign forever. And so the Jews were waiting for this king that would come from David, this long-awaited Messiah. And so Matthew's letting us know something. Jesus is that king. He's the Messiah you've been waiting for. Matthew also lets us know that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Abraham is the greatest example of faith from the Old Testament. God also made Abraham a promise that from his descendants, a great nation, the nation of Israel, would be born, and from that nation would come one who would bring all nations, all people, back to God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham as well. So what Matthew does right off the bat is let us know, Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. Jesus is that long-awaited Messiah, that long-awaited King, that long-awaited promise. Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. But he also lets his first-century Jewish readers know, he may not be exactly what you expected. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. So let's go back to Abraham for a second. Yes, Abraham was the greatest example of faith in the Old Testament, but Abraham wasn't perfect. He had a lot of flaws. Abraham lied on one occasion because he doubted God. Abraham and Sarah, his wife, also laughed at God on one occasion because God said that he was going to give them a child in their old age, and they didn't believe God. And also, Abraham and Sarah, they tried to hijack God's plan. They grew impatient waiting for God to give them a child. And so Sarah comes to Abraham one day, and she says, Hey, uh, I, you know, we're waiting too long for this to happen. Maybe God wants us to help him out a little bit. I'll tell you what, Abraham, you go sleep with my servant, get her pregnant, and then when she has a child, we'll adopt that baby as our own. Sounds like a bulletproof plan, right? You know, sounds like that's going to work out just great. But Abraham does it. Abraham sleeps with his wife's servant, gets her pregnant. She has a son. They adopt that son as their own. But almost instantly, Sarah is jealous of her servant and the, and the child that came from her servant. 
And so Abraham has to kick the servant and the child that he had with her out of their family. Kind of a messy way to start this whole nation of Israel thing, isn't it? But maybe some of you in the room today have become impatient with God before. Maybe you've grown tired of waiting on God to move in your life. Maybe you've tried to hijack God's plan and come up with your own plan, your own scheme, in order to get what you want. Well, if you've done that, that's what Abraham did. And he's in Jesus' family. There's another name that's mentioned in that verse that I just read. It's the name Jacob. Jacob was the son of Isaac, Isaac the son of Abraham. So Jacob is Abraham's grandson. And Jacob did some incredible things for God, but Jacob was a shady guy. In fact, he was so shady that he ended up tricking his own brother out of his inheritance. Not only that, when his father Isaac was on his deathbed and Isaac is sick and blind and not doing well, I mean, he's getting ready to die, Jacob comes in and tricks his own father out of his brother's blessing. He steals his brother's blessing. I mean, that's pretty low to steal from your own family, isn't it? But maybe you've used people in the past to get what you want. Maybe you've even used people you love to get what you want in life or to get ahead in life. Well, if that's you, that was also Jacob. And Jacob's part of Jesus' family. If you jump on down to verse 3, it says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, now, in Genesis 38, we meet this couple, Judah and Tamar. Judah is a man, Tamar a woman, and they had twins together. Now, that's not that odd of a thing. People have twins. In fact, we have a staff member here who's getting ready to have twins. He's also a Kansas fan. I don't hold that against him. But, you know, he's getting ready to have twins. People have twins. It's not a big deal. But here's the thing. Judah and Tamar, they weren't married. Now, we know that's not God, part of God's plan, but that happens sometimes. It gets worse. Not only are they not married... Judah is the father-in-law to Tamar. That's right. Judah gets his daughter-in-law pregnant. There's incest in Jesus' family line. And you guys thought the genealogy of Jesus was going to be boring, right? I mean, this is the type of stuff you see on soap operas or on Desperate Housewives or something like that. And you wouldn't expect to find it in Jesus' family tree. And yet it's there and it's there for a reason. You see what happened? is that Tamar, her husband, dies. And in that day and age, it was the father-in-law's responsibility to take care of his daughter-in-law. Tamar doesn't feel like Judah's doing a good job at that. So she dresses up like a prostitute, seduces her own father-in-law, he sleeps with her, she gets pregnant with twins. Let me ask you, have you ever in a moment of self-preservation done something that you regret? Have you ever in a moment of Self-preservation lied to someone, deceived someone? Maybe just to try to save face? That's what Tamar did. And she's in Jesus' family. Skip on down to verse 5, and it says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, in Joshua chapter 2, we meet this woman named Rahab. And there's really no nice way to say what Rahab did for a living. She was a prostitute. And so if you're keeping score here, now we have two prostitutes in Jesus' family line. One woman, Tamar, who just acted like a prostitute one night. Another woman who was a full-fledged prostitute. Not only was she full-fledged, she ran a house of prostitution. Now she ended up hiding the spies that God sent in to the, to the city of Jericho. So God blessed her. But still, we now have two prostitutes in Jesus' family line. And maybe you have some secrets from your past that you wish you could keep hidden. 
Maybe there's some secrets in your past that you hope no one ever finds out about. That was Rahab. And she's in Jesus' family. Now Rahab had a son named Boaz, and Boaz was a godly man in the Old Testament. But Boaz marries this woman named Ruth, and Ruth was a godly woman as well. But here's the thing, Ruth was a Moabite, meaning she was a foreigner. And the Israelites, they hated the Moabites. The Moabites were known for being an immoral people. They were known for worshiping false gods. The Israelites hated the Moabites. So when this great man of God, Boaz, marries this foreigner from a, foreign, from a pagan nation named Ruth, it would, have, it would have been a scandalous marriage. People would have gossiped about them. People would have talked about them. They would have whispered behind their back. There may have been some people even tried to oppose that marriage. And let me ask, maybe you've been judged because of your ethnicity or because of your race or because of your family background. If that's the case, that was the situation that Ruth was in. And yet she's part of Jesus' family. Skip on down to the end of verse 6 and look at how Jesus' family line continues. Verse 6 says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Matthew doesn't even use Bathsheba's name. This was such an embarrassing moment in the history of Israel that Matthew doesn't even use Bathsheba's name. He says, Uriah's wife. See, yes, David was a man after God's own heart and the greatest king in Israel's history. But like Abraham, David also wasn't perfect. And one lonely night, by the way, sidebar, we will do things when we're alone that we won't do when we have people around us to hold us accountable. That's why the church is so important, by the way. But David, one lonely night, sleeps with another man's wife. He sleeps with Uriah's wife named Bathsheba. Gets her pregnant. And then to cover up what he had done, he ends up having her husband murdered, killed. This is a man after God's own heart, sleeps with another man's wife, tries to cover up his sin, and then ends up committing murder. And maybe you've faced some very real consequences because of past sexual sin. Maybe you've tried to cover up past sin, and the more you've tried to cover it up, just the worse the situation becomes. That's what David did. And he's in Jesus' family. Well, the record of Jesus' family line continues, and from here on out, we just get a bunch of names of guys who were kings of Israel and Judah, as well as uh, those who were uh, survivors of the Babylonian captivity. And there are some good guys there, there are some bad guys there. Just to mention one of the bad guys that are mentioned at the end of Jesus' genealogy is this guy named Manasseh, Matthew 1.10. Uh, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And just to show you how evil this guy was, Billy Graham years ago had a sermon entitled, The Most Wicked King Who Ever Lived, and it was on Manasseh. I mean, Manasseh was just a bad dude, so bad that he threw his own son, infant son, into a fire in order to offer a sacrifice to a false god. He turned the temple of God into a house of prostitution. He also turned almost the entire nation of Judah away from God. He rebelled against God. Let me ask, have you ever rebelled against God? Do you have somebody in your family right now who's rebelling against God? A son, a daughter, a grandson, a granddaughter, a spouse? A brother, a sister? Manasseh rebelled against God. And yet he's in Jesus' family. And I don't have time this morning to talk about all the other black sheep that are listed in Jesus' genealogy. I mean, there's a bunch more, but I think you get the idea. My question is, why are all these people included? Well, we can learn some things from Jesus' genealogy. And the first thing we can learn is this. Jesus came from a mess. 
Jesus came from a line of people who were liars, who were sexually immoral, who were cheaters, idolaters, murderers, people who lacked faith. I mean, maybe this list of people makes you feel pretty uncomfortable. This is not your typical Christmas message where you hear about wise men and shepherds and angels and all that kind of stuff. And so maybe when you, when you heard me talk about incest and sexual sin and stuff like that, maybe you squirmed a little bit. Maybe this makes you feel uncomfortable. But guys, it's in there for a reason. God wants us to know it for a reason. Because maybe, just maybe, when you heard this list, you identified with it. Because guys, right now, if your family is a mess, Jesus' family was a mess. He knows what you're going through. He understands it. He feels your pain. He knows what it feels like to have the stigma of the past hang over him. But we don't just learn that Jesus came from a mess. We also learn that Jesus was born into a mess. Yes, Jesus was born into a world that had the taint of sin on it, a taint that went back thousands of years. But it's more personal than that. Jesus was also born into a pretty awkward situation. In Matthew 1.16, we see the end of Jesus' genealogy, and it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, we recognize those two names, Joseph and Mary, right? Of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. We all know that story, you know, Mary and Joseph, they're engaged to be married, and all of a sudden Mary ends up being pregnant. Now, we kind of romanticize that story, but I want you to put yourself just for a second in Mary and Joseph's shoes. They're engaged to be married, and all of a sudden, she's pregnant. And here's the thing, they've never slept together. Now, we all know that the baby's from God, we get that. But do you think anybody in Mary and Joseph's hometown is buying the virgin birth story? You think anybody's buying that? We wouldn't buy it if somebody came to you and said, Hey, I'm pregnant, but I didn't sleep with anybody. You know, it's from God. We wouldn't buy it either, would we? Jesus' entire life, he probably heard whispers about his mother. He probably heard people badmouth his mom and call her names. He himself was probably called names. People gossiped about his family. In this day and age, you didn't forget stuff like that. It stayed with you. Jesus was born into a pretty awkward situation. He was born into a mess. And if the circumstances of your life right now are a mess, Jesus gets it. Jesus understands. And I think that's why Matthew's gospel starts off this way. I mean, God could have done it in a different way, couldn't He? He could have made sure that Jesus' family line was uh, pristine and prestigious. He could have made sure that Jesus came from royals and nobility. He could have made sure there were parades in the streets when His Son was born. But instead, God set it up so that His Son came from a messed up family, was born into an awkward situation, was raised by a poor Jewish carpenter and a scared teenage girl in the podunk town of Nazareth. Why? Because where Jesus came from and what Jesus was born into shows us the people for which He came. Read with me, if you would, Matthew 1, verses 21 through 23. Because I believe the two most important names in Matthew chapter 1 are the names given to the Son of God. An angel is speaking to Joseph, explaining to him what's going on. And look at what this angel says, verse 21. She, your fiancée Mary, 
will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Now, that's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the God who saves, the God who rescues, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Guys, names matter. You've heard it said, it's all in a name. Those two names given to the Son of God, Jesus, the God who saves, and Emmanuel, God with us, let us know that the God who has the power to rescue us from our mess has come to live with us and in us. So here's the whole point of this message. Here's the whole point of Matthew chapter 1. Jesus came from a mess and was born into a mess in order to save us from our mess. My son Alex loves trick-or-treat. I know that it's Christmas time, but Halloween wasn't that long ago. And he loves to trick-or-treat, mainly because he loves to get free candy. And I remember after we got finished trick-or-treating this past year, he came home with a ton of candy. This was the bucket or bag that he used. It was full of candy. It was so full that at one point we dumped it out in the car, had to, and then he filled it up again because we saw into so many houses he got so much candy. So we got home that night, and he wanted to eat all of it, and we wouldn't let him. We said, no, you pick two pieces of candy, and that's all you can have tonight. He was like, okay. He complained a little bit, but he agreed. And so he picked two pieces, two types of candy that I figured he would pick. The first one that he picked is a Tootsie Roll. He loves Tootsie Rolls. My wife does too. He gets that from her. So he picked a Tootsie Roll. And then he also picked a package of gummies, you know, like gummy bears or worms. He loves gummies. And so those were the two things that he ate. And then we put him on the bed. Didn't think anything else about it. Well, a few hours passed, and all of a sudden we woke up to him crying. And both Alice and I went into his room, and he wasn't in bed anymore. He was standing up outside of his bed with his arms open like this, covered in a mess. He had thrown up. The mess was all over him. It was all over his bed. It was all over the floor. It was everywhere. And then I looked around the room, and I saw a bunch of empty Tootsie Roll wrappers and gummy wrappers. They were all over the room. He had snuck out of his room, and he had more than just the two pieces we told him he could have. He learned that night that too much of a good thing is not always a good thing. Made him sick. So immediately, Alice and I went into parent mode. You know, nobody teaches you what to do in that situation. You just kind of know. We jumped in the parent mode. We got some towels and some washcloths and Lysol and started cleaning, cleaning him up and cleaning his bed up and his room up. And then after we got everything cleaned up, we laid him back down, and he went back to sleep and was fine. But you know, what would have happened if when I walked in and I saw my son standing there and he was kind of looking at me, he never said this, but he was kind of looking at me and saying, you know, Dad, I've made this mess, but I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> what if I would have said, figure it out. You made the mess. Deal with it. We told you not to eat more than two pieces of candy. You disobeyed us. Your fault. You made the mess. Deal with it, buddy. My four-year-old would still be in that mess because he doesn't know how to clean himself up. A loving parent would never do that. A loving parent just jumps into action. And what if our Heavenly Father would have looked at us and this mess that we created in His world because of sin and said, I told you not to sin. I told you not to do all that stuff. You did it. You made the mess. Deal with it. A loving Father would never do that. Instead, God broke into our mess 
because he was the only one who had the power to clean us up. Jesus came from a mess, was born into a mess, in order to save us, to rescue us from our mess. That's why he came. That's why we celebrate. That's why we rejoice this season and throughout the year. Because God broke into our mess to clean us up. And no matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, what labels have been placed upon you, what mess you have created, you are loved by our Heavenly Father. And when you let His Son in, He will clean you up. Because God has a place for you and His family. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You so much for Your Son, Jesus. We thank You for sending Him into this world. And this time of year, we get so caught up in gifts and decorations and music and all sorts of stuff that sometimes we forget who we're celebrating. And that's Your Son. Thank You for breaking into our world. Thank You for coming down the ladder. Thank You for invading our lives with the joy of heaven through Your Son. Father, we celebrate Him today. And through His name, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.